0: Welcome to The Struggle Is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. If you've spent any amount of time in the working world, you probably know how much meetings can consume the work week. I'm crazy, and I actually track this metric. On average, I spend 9.4 hours a week in meetings, or 23% of my week. And meetings aren't going anywhere. They seem to be the default modality of getting things done. And I have to agree, meetings make sense for some situations. If I'm going to continue to spend a fourth of my career in meetings, I want to be good at it. Surprisingly, there are a lot of effective ways to have better meetings. Someone that knows a lot about this subject is today's guest, Darren Shate. In 2016, Darren co-founded the company Hugo, which is on a mission to make every meeting worth it. The product started as a simple Slack plugin and has transformed into a connected meeting notes platform. You'll hear more about Darren's story in this episode, along with many actionable takeaways, including how to use asynchronous work to limit meetings, how to take better meeting notes, and answering the question, do we need a meeting with the three Ds, decision, discussion, and debate. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the former mobile DJ and corporate lawyer turned tech entrepreneur, Darren Shate. I've only heard about this one time, so I don't really know any of the backstory here, but I heard you say that you opened for Justin Trudeau at a Canadian conference in front of 29,000 people. So first, is that true? And then second, how did you find yourself on that stage? Yeah, it, it is true. It was at a really big conference called Collision, which is like one of North, North
1: America's biggest tech conferences by the Web Summit folks. And I got chatting to a guy in a bar in San Francisco who, was, who ran the event and was, was traveling and he was telling me that he was trying to find these really interesting startups, I said, Hey, I'm a startup founder. What, what are you looking for? And we got chatting and he said, cool, comment pitch Hugo. To everyone before Prime mean, Minister so came on to uh, to open up this event. I'm like, cool, no worries. So i like, man, this pitch has got to be perfect. Like, there's so many people in the audience. So I was like rehearsing it perfectly, choosing my words. And they had and, like an auto cue thing happening. So they're like, it's all great. Give us your pitch. We'll get it up on the screen so you can see it and you get your pitch perfect. Anyway, I get up on stage and the screen's blank. Like, oh, so I'm like staring. Wait, no. And as you know, if any startup found out, you can always pitch your company, but I was so psyched to read it and have this perfect word. So I kind of froze for a few seconds and then I was like, ah, and uh, yeah, pitched Hugo for a couple of minutes. The Canadian Prime Minister came on and it was unbelievable from a traction ER growth standpoint. One of the best things we've done. It was a really great conference as well. So definitely one of the stranger places I found myself on stage, but it was, it was really good for Hugo. That just randomly happened at a bar, <laughs> like yeah. <I> places. <laughs> Seriously. It that I guess that's the magic of a place like San Francisco, maybe what it was anyway. You know, the people you run into and the serendipity was pretty, pretty incredible. Hmm. What do you mean what it was? Well, I think with COVID it, it's changed a lot. It used to be, I think it, it's, it's coming back in some parts and, and, and some areas, but in general, it's definitely not what it was a lot of my networking friends colleagues and everything that we're living in the Bay Area have um, dispersed a little bit or they've set themselves up somewhere else and haven't come back, but the company's now remote, they don't need to be there. So definitely a different feeling so far in San Francisco to what it was, you know, two, three years ago.
0: Hmm. Are you seeing a slow crawl back to that or do you expect this probably to be a somewhat permanent change for San Francisco?
1: A somewhat permanent change, in San Francisco. When you've got a lot of large companies who brought people to the to the area, who now say, "Hey, don't worry about it." Twitter doesn't have an office really there. Pinterest work from home. Square do your thing. You know, so all of these big tech companies that brought people, especially to the city, now not making you go there. You start to you start to evaluate where you want to live. Like, I can live in a house in Southern California for the same price as a one bedroom apartment in San Francisco. Why would I be in San Francisco necessarily? I think some of those drivers are really are really changing what the city's like and what and what it feels like. So I've only spent a little bit of time there, sort the of
0: post COVID, if you like, but that's the feeling I had anyway. And maybe it'll change. Yeah, I love San Francisco. I've been there a couple times, just visiting, but it is so expensive. And I'm in Austin, Texas, so Man. I get I get the the miniature version of San Francisco without the major dollar signs that come along with living in San Francisco. <laughs> Exactly. I love Austin and all my friends and people I work with shout at me every time I talk about how
1: great it is. So you can play it down at the world, Cup, not know that Austin is this like amazing city to live and work because the um from places like San Francisco is making it more and more expensive and busier and crazier. So I totally get it. Yeah.
0: It's going to turn into its own San Francisco here, but the, the local Austinites are definitely fighting back up against that a little <laughs> bit. But. but Darren, super Fair excited to, to have you on the podcast, man, this is A topic that is probably near and dear to a lot of my my listeners there are a lot of working professionals that listen to this podcast that have recently joined the workforce and they quickly find out that meetings can be a large chunk of what is actually in your job description so today we are going to be talking about how to do meetings better and uh, i think nobody better to to have that conversation with with someone like yourself that creates a product around meetings but also you had quite the career that I think really started this. Tell me, how does starting your career as a corporate lawyer make you the perfect person for solving problems in the meeting space? Yeah, uh, great question.
1: I, I, as you mentioned, I started out as a corporate attorney in Australia where I'm from originally. And the thing about being a lawyer, right, is that you bill for your time. So when there's inefficiencies and time wasted, you can literally quantify the cost. I remember walking out of these big meetings that would have like eight or 10 people in them and nothing really happened. There's good discussion and a few actions came up and we went in circles a little bit and everyone took their own notes, which who knows where they ended up. And then you walk out the room, not quite knowing what you achieve. And you see a bill in the billing software for like $8,000 or $7,000. And it literally blew my mind. The cost of the of inefficiencies with meetings was literally right in front of us. And like, you like many listeners, like everyone else, I always found that meetings competed with productive work. It was always frustrating when you had to go to meetings because meetings didn't feel like real work. So with this frustration, I, I used to always complain to a good friend of mine who I'd worked with before, who was living in, in San Francisco and, and trying to understand what was going on. And his experience was a little bit different in that he was working for a tech company. So much had changed about the way we work. They're already working remotely in part. They were using so much different collaboration software, their decentralized decision-making and really modern team setups. But meetings were as they had been for generations. There's been like no innovation in that part of the way we worked. So we said, we've got to solve this. And um, we actually went about solving it a different way first, um, but we really were focused and obsessed with this problem, um, meetings and how we can make them more efficient, more effective, and a productive part of how we work as a team.
0: What was your early hypothesis on how you could make meetings better?
1: We thought it was all about preparation. If only we could prepare better for meetings, meetings would run better. And that's definitely part of it. And we can talk about that in a moment and come back to it. But it's not just, it's also about capturing the value of the meetings and resurfacing that at, at the right time, ensuring nothing slips between the cracks and having a really great workflow around the way. Hmm.
0: So tell me a little bit about Hugo, which is eventually the company that you founded with your Uh, co-founder josh so you told me about how you're initially solving it but but what is the product today
1: totally so she does a meeting productivity hub for teams so we provide one central place uh, where teams prepare for meetings take notes and turn those notes into action in the rest of their software stack and we so it's built on top of your calendar and we help you with meeting agendas with note-taking and all the actions end up in the relevant tools so if you're in sales your crm your project management tools shared out, via Slack or Microsoft Teams, everyone else knows. And then you end up with this really, I guess this critical central repository of all the team's meeting knowledge, all organized by the contacts and companies you met. So next time I meet with someone at Uber, there are all the all the insights, all the meetings, all the action from everyone in my business to ever met with Uber before. Ultimately, it means you attend less meetings because you can be across the detail without being in the room. The actions don't slip between the cracks and what meetings and, and, and were. Um, is a lot more enjoyable and pleasant because of that.
0: Yeah, no, that is, I think, genius. I have kind of dummied a little bit of your product into my own version for for my company. We have a, I don't know if you know the, the product Smartsheet, but I use, I can organize Smartsheet a little bit. It's not perfect. And the integration without the calendar is not quite there yet, uh, but I would love to to bring Hugo into my company at some point in time. I am wondering your transition from corporate lawyer to tech founder quite a difference in terms of the personality and the skill sets you need for it. You mentioned one already. You go from really red tape type environment where you're billing out and whatnot to, I'm assuming as a tech founder, you have to be very agile, very conscious of how you spend both all of your resources, time, attention, uh, and money included. What was maybe one or two of the biggest leaps or changes that you had to make from yourself professionally going from a corporate lawyer to a tech founder? Yeah, great question and there's
1: things I'm still trying to figure out, but in general, I, I think there's an element of how you're motivated, whether that's externally or um, internally or intrinsically, it's very it's not easy, but it's a lot easier when you're working for a, for a business um, that, tell, that tells you what to do to get your job done um, because it's clear and if you don't turn up to work, you'll probably get fired and if you don't do your best work, it's not going to have a great outcome for you. As soon as you work for yourself, you don't have to turn off. to work. You don't have to do your best work. And that's really dangerous. It's really exciting because you're, you're motivated by stuff that matters. I'm not doing something because my boss told me. I'm doing something because I care about the problem. I want to solve it. I'm excited. I'm winning. I'm, it, it, there's problems I need to fix, whatever it is. But at the same time, if you can't push yourself and have the, the drive and the work ethic and the motivation to get things done, you will go nowhere. So that's probably the biggest, the, the biggest change. Um, at the same time, the type of work is very different. Um, Ultimately, it's all about work that matters, and you've got to be the arbiter of that. So even now, I find myself very often where you could be, is it work that matters? Is it going to move the needle? Is it going to help us achieve our goals? And it may have been work that matters based on what you knew last week, but now with all the new information, you need to quickly reprioritize. And that's hard for someone. I've always had a very strong work ethic in working in the corporate world. I've always worked hard, but hard used to be all about hours. Now hard is all about output. You could have a, you know, a few hour block where you just smash up something that's so high quality, it's so transformative for your startup. And it doesn't matter that you're then not doing anything for us today because that's how you measure value. So that shift as well has been yeah, really, really significant.
0: When, did you, do you feel like you're, I, I mean, playing in this space, you got to become somewhat, I'm guessing of a subject matter expert with inside of meetings as a whole. And I know you mentioned that one story of, I believe one of your clients, who was like 3000 employees or something. He came to you and asked you how he could run better one-on-one meetings. And maybe that was like your first like imposter syndrome moment. Like, mm-hmm. holy cow, That's like right. I am a SME in this space and I'm sharing out information. <laughs> uh, do you find yourself like getting asked a lot of questions around meetings in general? Totally. Absolutely. I think what we don't realize, and on that
1: story, right, it was that moment of, hang on, I'm building software to sell, ultimately, the most simple explanation of what we do. And here I am trying to give advice to experienced executives on running their business. Seems so foreign. But what you've got to remember is that I've been thinking about this stuff for years. I've been obsessing with this problem and how it should be solved with the team and my co-founder for a very long time. So when we talk about this stuff, there's probably no chance you've read as much as I have, or even given it as much thought as I have, which naturally makes me a bit of an expert, even though I don't feel like I deserve to be one. (laughs) Um, So definitely. Yeah. I I love talking about these things and and as time has gone on, I've obviously had many conversations and had many debates and and, uh,
0: yeah, given it more and more thought. Mm. Well, let's get into some of that expertise. So I'll probably chunk this, this conversation into three different buckets now, kind of the before the meeting, during the meeting and after the meeting. So let's start with before the meeting. And we've all heard that, we've all seen that joke online that like this meeting should have been an email. <laughs> so at that, that brings me up to my very first question here is, when do you need to have a meeting? And maybe if, if you could use the three Ds as a great foundation yeah. to, to, to explain this.
1: We talk about the three Ds being debate, discussion and decision-making. If you need to have some debate, if you need to have discussion, if you need to make decisions, in many cases, it makes sense to have a meeting. And the reason we narrow it to that is there's a big temptation to use meetings as a forum for collaboration. And a generation ago, that may have made sense. We have so much available to us now as far as tools, um, chat apps, even email, asynchronous tools. So we can talk a little about async in a minute, but like sending videos and things like that that I can share information so easily in a far better way than bringing all of these people in the room at the same time or on the video call at the same time. So debate, discussion, decision making is a really good quick rule of thumb or heuristic for when you need to have a meeting. Otherwise, turn to one of the other ways of collaborating.
0: Mm. So you see collaboration as maybe a major category that might get overused for meetings. Anything else that, that kind of falls into a general category that is typically not, meetings aren't useful for?
1: Yeah, I think social interaction, pulse checks, connecting to others. And that's been really interesting over the course of the pandemic. I think meetings are misused for that in many cases. And what I mean by that is if I want to connect to someone, if I want to see how things are going, if I want to do these human things that are even more important in a remote setting, when I, can't, when I don't cross your desk or we don't get to feet together, um, it's very easy for me to pick up the phone or send you a quick message and be like, hey, Justin, what's up? Do you have a few minutes? I'd love to check in or just call you. I don't need to go and schedule 30 minutes on your calendar because really no one schedules less than that, right? And block that time out, demand it to be on my schedule, not yours, because I chose the time You need to break up your day, to have a switching cost before and after the meeting. And all of a sudden, my quick like, hey, man, how are you tracking is turned into this big 45 minutes to an hour distraction, you know, based on the switching costs and so on. So, I think that's the other area where meetings are the code name, I guess, or refer to any interaction we have with our teammates. But it doesn't need to be the case. That's not what a meeting
0: is, always. Hmm. So, you mentioned a few things in there. I think we'll definitely get to synchronized versus async work as well, because I think that is a really great concept to explore. You also gave a little bit of a teaser around meeting expansion. Like you you were talking about, like nobody puts no more than 30 minutes on the calendar. And even uh, what I have found in my own personal opinion too, is sometimes that the accomplishment or, or whatever needed to be accomplished during that meeting gets done in 10 minutes, and then we spend the next 20 minutes still on the call doing, I don't even know what. <laughs> Exactly. There's a, apparently some principle for that, that Eddie on our team was
1: referencing this morning, I've forgotten what it's called actually, where we fill whatever time we have, the same for deadlines, right? Back to college, you know, there's no, you no enhance things in early. If you are organized and you start that paper, all you're going to do is keep working on it until the deadline. And the same goes for meeting. And, and, and that's the psychology of a meeting and being ruled by our calendars. My calendar says I'm going to be in this conversation until, you know, two o'clock, well. I'm not going to finish it at 140. Or you make a big, there's a whole big song and dance about it. I had another meeting today where everyone's like, well, let's all take, in, take the 10 minutes back. I'm like, well, you stole it in the first place by just putting this unilaterally in my calendar. This wasn't someone on my team, it was external. You know, not, I'm not getting, you're not giving it back to me, it was mine. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a funny sort of shift in our minds about what the calendar means and what a meeting's for that needs to happen. And it's, it's a big cultural change and it's very hard to do bottoms up. And I know a lot of the people we're talking to today don't have that influence. They can't go and say, yeah, no, I'm not attending that meeting because that's that's just like how their organizations work. And that's the, that's the biggest challenge. I'd much rather be talking
0: to CEOs who can drive
1: this cultural change.
0: No doubt, but uh, hopefully we are talking to some future CEOs. So they're more, they're more thoughtful about the meetings that they're creating for their companies and even for their internal teams. And it's been great. I've been learning tons about meetings over the last couple of weeks in preparation for this, and I brought in so many ideas to my manager and she's been so receptive about some of the potential ideas that we have there one thing that I think is interesting as well is this concept of meeting scarcity, which you have a specific rule around at at Hugo as well. Can you tell me a little bit about meeting scarcity over meeting abundance and what your rule is at Hugo?
1: Absolutely. So how do we, so the the question we were asking ourselves was with all of these principles around meetings and respecting the meeting and reducing the number of them to those purposes, how do you drive that? And when the temptation is just to keep putting time on people's calendars or your own, there's not a thought needed to click and drag and kill everyone's day one in one click. How how do we, how do we drive that culture? How do we enforce that culture in in a really helpful way? So we came up with this principle of the four hour word, the four hour meeting week. And the four hour meeting week um, is the idea that we shouldn't spend more than four hours of our week in internal meetings. Now, before everyone falls off their chairs, like that sounds insane. And it's worked really well for us. Why? Because actually you rarely need more than four hours of internal meetings where they have to be done synchronously for that, for that purpose. If you um, think about all the permutations of the different people you're working with, most of the time you can cover that in, in a few hours. I can have you know uh, four one-hour meetings or eight 30-minute meetings or whatever it may be over the course of the week. Usually when they're recurrent, you can wait to that next meeting to cover those things if you throw it on the agenda and you have a good meeting planning and preparation process. But more importantly, it changes the psychology of the value of a meeting. If I have this scarcity, if I know that I can't, and, and if you slip by exception, it's not the point, but if I know that I can't exceed a certain count, I stop and think every time I'm about to book a meeting, I, I stop and think, like, is it worth it? Because the opportunity cost of this 45 minutes I'm about to book means I can't go and do something else for that 45 minutes. And it, or it always then drives people to stop and, and think and reassess whether it's worth it and whether I need a meeting, whether it can be done some other way. And most of the time it can, we just didn't stop to ask that question. It's been a really important bit of the way we work as a team and some of the culture that we're driving. In you know, When we're recruiting and, and even when people leave the business, they refer to it all the time. It's one of the most transformative ways that we work and it's been very, very successful for us.
0: Yeah, I'm not quite there in my role yet. I would say I have a fairly meeting heavy role. I tracked my time since the start of the year and I'm at 9.4 hours a week for meetings. So a little over double what you have. And then I see my manager's calendar and it's He's got twice as many meetings as I do, which is just insane to me and, and how she actually gets any work done outside of the actual yeah, meeting. That's, <laughs> it. that's it. That's You get to the end of the day and you've had such a busy day, but you don't really have
1: much to show for it. And that's the, that's the killer. That's one of the worst feelings in, in the professional world, in my view. And it doesn't need to be that way. It, like that's it's, it's that way because it's always been that way or because we're not leveraging great processes and tools and, and, and ways of working that are available to us in 2022.
0: So around scheduling and and invitations in general, I feel like we tend to maybe over invite on our meetings, maybe because we don't want anyone to feel left out of the meeting itself. And I mean, obviously, we're sitting here talking about so many of the inefficiencies of meetings. So just mass inviting tons of people is not the right way. So how do you become more thoughtful about your invitations? And then in terms of communicating to the people that Thought they should maybe be on the invitation, but they shouldn't. Do you have any advice around that? Absolutely. So back to the 3Ds, if they're not a part of the debate, discussion, decision-making, they don't need to be in the room. If they
1: need to know what's happening to be across things or receive information, there's other ways to do it. Share your notes. Simple as that. And managing expectations, reach out to them. You'd be my favorite person I've ever worked with. If you're like, hey, Darren, we've got this project catch up tomorrow. I'm just scheduling. I'm going to leave you up just so you can have the time. I'll obviously loop you in on the notes. You're across the detail. I'll, I'll literally come and give you a hug. Like you would you'd make my day. So, so, yeah, managing on the front foot so people don't feel excluded, is important. And you only have to do that a few times till they know that, you know, whenever Justin runs a meeting, I'm always going to get the notes shared and, I'm, and if there's any actions or that matters, I'm going to see it. I'm going to be across it.
0: It's not knocking out more than an hour of the middle of my day. Yeah, I don't even think we really talked about it. Uh, Obviously the time that you spend in meetings itself is I wouldn't say lost time because hopefully you're having productive meetings as well. And you're making decisions, you're having discussion and and you're having healthy debates. but you said the word switching cost. So it's not only just the amount of time dedicated to that meeting, but this on and off time to transition between projects that you're working on into the meeting itself. Yeah,
1: we learned this a lot with engineers. I think engine software engineers, um, which makes up about half our team, are a really interesting persona to understand because when you're writing software, you can imagine you're in the midst of some code and you're on one line typing this code that you've thought through in your head. You have an approach for the logic and how it works. You have the dependencies and the files, and then someone stops you what you're doing, right? All of a sudden. So you turn, you're like, okay, yeah. And then you, you have that conversation which takes a minute to understand and get into, because you think about something else. And then you come back and you're like, where was I? Mm-hmm. So now you're spending a whole lot of time trying to go back a few steps and reread and figure out where you were before you can get back to the position you're before that. So that five-minute, 15, 30-minute disruption is very often 30, 40, 50 minutes of, of, of lost time. And we also, depending how you plan your day, you can also have unproductive blocks. So if you've got tons of 30 minute blocks scattered because of meetings, very often you just don't time to get anything meaningful done. It's going to take me 15 minutes to open up that can of worms or more. It's not worth even starting that because by the time I started, I have to stop. And then you get to the end of the day and all you've achieved is attended those meetings and nothing's happened to the blocks in between. And that's the real problem. We're not, if you attend nine hours of internal meetings a week, nine hours is acceptable. It's less than 25% of your work week, but it's not nine hours. It's.
0: 13 hours, 14 hours, 15 hours, whatever it is, and a feeling of unproductiveness between them. That is so true. I didn't think about those small little gaps in there, but you're right. I hardly get too much done in between those 30-minute gaps if I have two meetings kind of stacked like that. It's typically just like finishing up my recap on what that meeting was, getting out maybe a couple quick emails, and then on to the next one.
1: <laughs> exactly. We try and um, uh, and stack up meetings too. So I have like meet days and that, and do my best to to schedule that way, So you've just got uninterrupted time and then you've got back-to-back meeting time, but that doesn't always work. Unfortunately, with so many schedules, it's often a company policy. Even the big tech companies like Facebook has, has a meeting free Wednesday. And that was the day that everyone used to work remote pre-COVID. So it's definitely a, another great cultural thing that can be done to, to try and help everyone have that productive time.
0: Do you guys do a meeting free day during the week at all?
1: We do. We we actually do the opposite, which are like meeting days. So Tuesdays and okay. Thursdays are meeting days, and then, then always things pop up. Especially, I spend a lot of time talking to customers, and the obviously, um, customer meetings have another whole world around them. And I just try and schedule. them. you know, if I'm offering a lot of availabilities, I'll try and push them closer in blocks and like that. Doesn't always work, but it definitely helps when it does.
0: So we talked a lot about some of the front end work you can do. So you're either having efficient meetings or not getting invited to meetings or not inviting the wrong people to meetings. But before we progress into some things you could do during the meeting, one other alternative to having meetings you mentioned is asynchronous work. So why don't you break down what is synchronous versus async work? Yeah, totally. So it's
1: a bit of a nerdy buzzword that's going around in this in this in the collaboration space. Synchronous working or synchronous collaboration is the idea that we both have to be working on the same schedule at the same time. So a meeting is synchronous, right? I can't have a meeting with you where I'm. It's it's a certain time for me and a certain time for you that are that are distinct times. A telephone conversation is synchronous. A live chat conversation is synchronous, etc. Async is the idea of working on different schedules. So an email is asynchronous. I send you an email and if you're um, on a different time zone, if you're having a late night, if you're out with your brains, if you're looking after your kids, whatever it is, you can apply on your own schedule and then I can reply on my own schedule. And you're a morning person, so it might be early in the morning and I'm a late night person, later at night and we can collaborate that way. So email is not new and always synchronous, async. But the idea of having the same quality of collaboration asynchronously is. Because historically, the only real ways to collaborate asynchronously were via email or writing a letter back in the day. And we all know that so much is lost. You can't collaborate. You don't have to collaborate by saying, I like, communicate in the simplest terms and you probably miss half the attempt and and, and and all of that. Now there's so many ways to do it. I mean, we, our view at QG on this is the idea of getting the whole value of the meeting. After the meeting, that's asynchronous. right? I didn't have to be there at the time. Late that night, I can see the notes, the actions, the takeaways, the recording, even everything there. But other ways we use it extensively is with video. So there's a great company called Loom, but there's a few other competitors too that allow you to record quick videos. So when I'm, you know, up, I've got a four week old baby now, I'm up in the middle of the night. She's screaming and I, I'm staring into space, wishing she'd stop. And I had this amazing idea for a marketing campaign. I can flip open my phone or my map and record a quick video to share with the team. Like, hey, guys, I was just thinking, like, what if we did this and this and this and this and this? Check this out. Look at my screen here. And, and they can see the excitement in my face and my voice. I'll send it off. Damn it. It's really hard waking up early the next morning because I've been up all night. But a few folks in the marketing team are serious and warning people. They get, the, they get that and they can get all excited and they can shoot something back to me. And all of a sudden, we've been collaborating through the night on different time zones and different life schedules um, where... Otherwise, that would have been a meeting, and of course, the meeting may not have even been great because I didn't inspiration didn't hit during the meeting. I, didn't, I was exhausted. I didn't feel like that, and whatever. So, this way of working asynchronously just makes so much sense. Now, it takes longer in many cases, and that's where if you're having debate, if you're trying to make decisions, it's not always the right forum. But having that in your tool belt to to be able to work together asynchronously is really great. It's selfishly, it's fantastic. I can work in my own time zone when 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 I'm most productive and when I've got the time. But for the business, it's really impressive way of working together. Go I encourage you if you need to go and share some of the idea or give some feedback or something to your boss, whoever it is, go record a video to send it over. You'll blow their minds. They'll think this is unbelievable. And and, and you can start to introduce that culture that
0: way. Speaking of product led businesses, Loom it was as soon as I saw it, the first time one of my CSMs sent over a Loom video to answer one of my questions. I was like, this product is incredible. I love this. (laughs) That's right. And
1: it's so simple. There's not much to it, right? Uh, Literally in your browser, press a button. It'll record either your your screen or your face or both um, and your audio. And then send them a link and they've got the
0: video. And and literally something as simple as that will change the way you work. So let's shift to during the meeting. And we've talked a lot about We've talked about a lot of things that might actually help meetings as well. And I think setting things up, actually having a purpose, making sure that it is one of the three D's to establish a a good meeting. I think that will lends lends itself well to like having effective meetings, but also you're big into shared meeting notes, of course, which is, I actually think that is a pretty novel concept. I've never worked in a business that does shared meeting notes, like that everybody is actually collaborating on like one shared meeting notes so how do you guys do that at hugo i'm interested
1: yeah totally so it's a bit like a google docs type experience we can not typing in at the same time there are permissions and things so we definitely have times where i want to i take my own notes and i can create a separate document change the permissions um, on that um but what it does is it changes the the mentality and the psychology around um capturing meaning and value everyone has different perspectives different takeaways they look at things from a different different angle it also gives confidence that the output of that meeting is being captured and shared. So we also see a lot of behaviors where there's like a scribe type personality, where someone will take the notes, but they may share their screen while they're doing it so everyone can see the actions and what's being captured, even if they don't have to take notes themselves. So it's much less of a personal process, like you with your notebook or whatever, you whatever you might do today, and much more of a team process.
0: And I'm assuming that, People aren't writing down verbatim everything that is happening in the meeting. How do you typically outline your meeting notes? Or do you have templates that you use? Yeah, we yeah, we use tons of templates. Templates are your friends. It's it's the, always the empty the empty document problem. You
1: know, you jump in the cursors flicking, like, where do I start? So we have, I mean, Chico provides that hundred template. That's one of the areas of thought leadership where we've been able to add a lot of value and do a lot of research and collate a lot of best practices across various types of meetings but a lot of companies have their own bespoke templates too and, and i think that's really important like having structure around meetings really matters and our view is that the preparation is the structure for the meeting and then you can use the template to start the preparation um having that structure for a meeting matters so much and not just for obvious reasons like obviously when you walk into the room and taking everyone's time you want to keep it on track and, and, and run it as efficiently as you can and you can only really do that if you have an agenda or a framework structure for that meeting. But it changes the whole dynamic of the meeting because the person who's running the meeting is actually running the meeting. There's some sort of control for the meeting. And everyone's, everyone knows what to expect, provided you're sharing that out before. They've walked in there thinking already about different thoughts, different ideas of how they can contribute. They're going to be so much more engaged um, in the meeting process because they're walking into this meeting that's what, that everyone's involved in, not going to sit in the conference room to be, surprised by what's up next.
0: Yeah. And it's actually surprising how many meetings I walk into that. I'm not really sure what we're doing at that (laughs) meeting, what's the purpose, what's the agenda, and even just asking people for the agenda kind of forces some meeting organizers to think twice about either inviting you and or putting some kind of actual agenda together, which is super helpful. You guys are crushing at the SEO, actually. I found you and your company because I was looking for meeting agenda templates. (laughs) So you you guys, I think, popped up number one or two and I found your site and I was like, wow, your guys' articles that are out there and the templates you provide are phenomenal.
1: Yeah, thank you. Definitely.
0: In terms of meeting notes, I like the outlining the purpose at the very top. One or two sentences, the actual agenda follows and then that makes it really easy to start taking notes because you usually have like your top line headers there if you do have the agenda and then you're just putting bullet points underneath that, then I think I use the agenda template that more times than not, I use the one that has decisions where you just highlight the decisions and then any key milestones that happen during the meeting as well. So those, yeah. if, if somebody's out there that's wanting to put something together on your own, and for some reason you don't want to go to, go to Google and, and find Hugo's uh, meeting templates, uh, that's a pretty good framework, purpose, agenda, decisions, and milestones and outlining those. Anything to add there? Um, no, I, I totally agree.
1: I think the decisions and milestones also keeps the meeting on track. It's very easy to have a list of things we're discussing, but you get to the end of the meeting, you're like, that was a great discussion. I'm like, now what? <laughs> what do we even agree? <laughs> what happens now? So sometimes next steps and actions and that I, I'd be including as well. But regardless, having those sort of concluding or summarizing headings, like you mentioned, like the milestones and whether it be next steps or, or so on, I think is really, really important um, because high quality meeting isn't just about the discussion. It's It's about what happens afterwards.
0: In terms of the discussion, are you a PowerPoint advocate or very, very against PowerPoint?
1: I sit in the middle and it's
0: funny. I feel like everyone by the
1: one or the other, it really depends. I um, mean, obviously using it effectively, we're much more of a visual company. So we don't subscribe to like the Amazon, you know, share a paper before the meeting that everyone's assumed to have read, I guess, because we have like thorough agendas. So, you know, in our marketing weekly meetings Shigo. We don't, in the agenda, it's got all the metrics and things that we need to update everyone on. Everyone reads that, it's part of the preparation, and then there's discussion items. And we just kind of jump through that. But in many, when you're trying to convey concepts and share information and that, I think slides are a far nicer way to do it than, than pages and pages of documentation in many cases. So I am definitely definitely am a fan of that. But putting your pages and pages of documentation on screen in the form of PowerPoint isn't that. <laughs> so. Um, so yeah, use, use, sparingly for the right audience and for the right content, I'm, I'm a fan. So I sit on the fence.
0: Agreed. I'm probably right there. It can be a tool if used properly, very effective. If not used properly, very, very ineffective. <laughs> Death by California. I've heard one too many times. No doubt. No doubt. So in terms of meeting notes, so after the meeting, so you were mentioning that you can opt so many people out of meetings because you can just share the meeting notes with them. So of course you need to have thorough meeting notes for that. But just to play on that concept, so many businesses don't think like that. So much of what it is, is kind of this need to know basis. Like if like you need to know anything, we'll let you know versus you guys, it seems like kind of default to sharing everything and then pulling anything back that you feel like doesn't need to be shared.
1: That's right. That's right. So def- default open is, a, is definitely a more modern way of thinking. I think for a lot of our customers in many cases, tech companies themselves, that's becoming more of the norm. And the reason for that, I think there's, there's, two, there's two reasons um, to, be tr- to have transparency and, and to default openness as, as the standard. One is as part of the workforce, especially, you know, in our generation and our end of things, that's how we want to work. We want to be across what's happening in business and the why. So if I'm asking a junior attorney, let's say, right, in my previous life to go and review this document and, you know, do some research on X and Y, they'll do it because they have to. But they would much rather know why, where that fits in. We have this big lawsuit that's coming up and we have to get, you know, provide this evidence by next week because we have this issue where whatever it is, I need you to please do this small task because this is how it's going to support that. You're going to feel a lot better about doing that small task, especially when it's hard work and through the night and something that's not so interesting. So sharing more widely on uh, across the business and where things are at and what everyone's working at has that benefit. And the other benefit, which is real business value, and that's why I you know, argue with anyone about this topic for days or debate, it, is that the the, the the company value of that shared consciousness and people being across what everyone else is up to and what's happening leads to better work. There's awareness of what's happening. So um, when opportunities arise or need to interface with others in the business, you have that subtle awareness of what everyone else is up to and and, and what's generally happening. Um, and you're, you're able to make decisions that better reflect what the business would want to do, because you have that shared consciousness of, well, I know this is what Justin typically does, or this is very much a Sarah type thing that, you know, she would totally disagree. I'm going to go out to her um, because I've seen her work and I know what they're doing, even though it's not the need to know, et cetera. So need to know is a complete old way of working that both, I think, disconnects and disenfranchises the workforce, but also leads to worse business outcomes. Yeah, there's always exceptions, of course, and there's times where it's not appropriate for the team, and that's fine, but that's the exception. So sharing meeting notes is just one great example of that where it's all there and you, you can be across any detail you need.
0: Yeah, agreed. And I have found many times I'm working on some initiative and I'm in the exploration stage of it. And, you know, 10, 15, 20 hours down the road, I find out. A different team is working on the exact same problem somewhere else. So this need to know basis around um, meeting notes creates these knowledge silos. And then th- this isn't getting shared and there's inefficiencies across the line because you're not even sure who to go to initially to ask if they're working on such project and or have no knowledge that a project may even be open within inside the company. I mean, I, we're an organization. I work for an organization of 8,000 plus. That's part of a part of a larger organization of 70,000 plus. Yeah. Okay. It is hard to know what everyone, what everybody is working on. And like I said, this happens frequently for me. So the there's
1: two issues, one is the other transparency and the other is knowing where that knowledge resides. So even if your business said like everyone share your meeting notes, right? Or like default open, they're accessible to everyone. Where do you even look? Is it a sales driven initiative that's in the CRM? Is it a project based thing that's in someone's specific project management tool? Is it, or is the whole plan and. Old and research living in an associate's notebook in Austin, Texas, and 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 the fragmentation of data and that is definitely a pain point that we learn about and you know why integrations that are so important. But that's that's the second part of the problem. Even when you do want to solve that, it's hard to solve, especially in larger organizations.
0: Yeah, it's your own personal ones. It's uh, you know it might be an email, it might be in a notebook next to you. We have plenty of SaaS products. We have a CRM that. That is widely used. Some people use OneNote, some people use OneDrive, like they're all over uh, the place. You're right. There's no way to actually find them. And that's kind of that active versus passive sharing concept. Right. How do you guys do that at, at Hugo?
1: Yeah, totally. So passive sharing is the yeah. idea of providing access, right? So Google, like a Dropbox or Google Drive is a good example of that. I can change permissions. So anyone in my company can access everything unless, you know, specifically not. Um, and that's great. That's, you can say you're transparent because if you really want, go looking for things. But that's passive sharing. Active sharing is the equivalent of saying, tapping on the shoulder and being like, hey, Justin, FYI, might be interesting. That is a way of exposing you to what's happening in the business. And that's going to be a lot more effective. Now, I can't tap you on the shoulder every time ever anyone in the business has a meeting. You have a very sore shoulder. But we have tools and other ways of doing things. Um, we, we see a lot of our customers with Slack and Microsoft Teams. So we have integration and you see feeds of notes shared to those channels organized by topics. And you can just join. There are a lot of topics that matter. So if you want to see what's happening, in our SMB customer success meetings, you just join that channel and there's a feedable meeting notes there and you can just get a general, you know, feeling for the keywords and the types of conversations and the themes coming up. So that's, that's one great way to do it. Or we tag individuals or teams, right? This is really important for the ops team to know. Well, they may be not important. They may be interested FYI at ops and they can, they can see a feed of, of, of those notes too, specifically. So. We achieve that tricky Hugo, but of course there's lots of ways to do that. And I think it's an interesting mentality to think about amongst your team. Do they just need access or do I actually need to actively share this information to those people?
0: How does an organization move from a need to know to this open shared concept? I, I that would be a hard ship to steer <laughs> in some industries particularly. Like I'm not sure if you guys sell a lot in professional services or financial services. But both, I feel like I've spent some time in, and they kind of default into this need-to-know basis. Totally,
1: it's really, really difficult. Um, it's it's an area that I don't have great sort of succinct advice on. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a cultural thing more. The, the, the practical steps are straightforward around tools and 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 communications, but the leadership of the business deciding that they're heading in that direction is really difficult when you've got generational of knowledge and, and and best practice that says that that's not how things should be done. Like all businesses, especially in high risk or regulated industries, operate on a need to know basis. I honestly, some days believe the fastest way is for this generation to become leaders in their businesses and operate them like they would like them to be operated as part of the workforce.
0: So let's move into a couple of my favorite meeting tips that I took away from you. The first thing that I implemented right away and actually I put it in my meeting note template is a parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me what's a parking lot and how is it useful within inside of meetings? Yeah. So a parking lot is
1: a place in the template for those points of discussion that need to be revisited. They're not, they're not going anywhere. We yeah. don't want to lose them though. And that's often the problem I find. Often you'll go down a path in a meeting, we're talking about something and it's not going anywhere. We're going in circles, time's ticking away. But I know if I stop, if I'm running the meeting and stop that conversation, I don't want that to be lost. It's still valuable. We just need to move on. So the parking lot is a home for those, those those points, those discussion items. You can move it to that place in your agenda to revisit at the next meeting, at the end of the meeting, whenever makes sense. But it's not lost into the ether that a lot of these things are, often are. So it's it's a great, par- yeah, great place, a great thing to add to the template um, for those types of items.
0: Yeah, I, I find that coming up a lot because I'm in so much just committee type meetings where great ideas are popping up, but I'm trying to keep the meeting focused on the agenda at hand. So it's a great place to just take that. That's a great thought. Karen, like let's revisit that at a future meeting. I don't want to derail the conversation right now. Okay. Let's put it in the parking lot. And like, that could be a great conversation for next meeting or the following meeting.
1: Exactly, but you haven't shut down that, that idea and never to be looked at again. So it's a perfect halfway.
0: What about your thoughts on if there's multiple decisions that need to be made? I heard that your preference is to take on some less important decisions first. Is that true? And if so, why? Yeah. So when you're
1: when, yeah, when you're making a series of decisions, it's very easy to have decision fatigue and to get to a point where you're making decision after decision and it's not it, it becomes it becomes quite unproductive. Flexing that decision muscle gets gets tied essentially. The inverse is also true where we're making decisions as a team, and it's always gonna be a slightly different team in the meeting room, takes a bit of ramp up time, like warm up time. So getting the motion for how we're gonna make the most effective decisions, starting with less important decisions first, really matters before we get into that motion and that momentum to make the larger decisions. Now, there's some other really good frameworks for decision-making out there that we, we we use and none of them are ours. And don't wanna do the conversation, go too deep down there. But I think in general, again, back to the corporate lawyer and startup founder, most decisions we make are reversible. It's very rare you're actually making an irreversible decision, and the cost of inaction always, almost always, exceeds the cost of error or an incorrect decision. So my view on decisions in general, I definitely hold the stand by that. Recommendations start with the smaller decisions, but if in doubt, make a call. Deferring decision making has never, never seen that succeed because. You don't, you typically, unless it's this very specific information you're going to receive at a certain point in time after that, and you need that information to make the decision, you you typically don't have greater clarity, you know, with the same people a week later, but all that's happened is you've done nothing for a week. So definitely default to action with decision-making would be my advice, especially in a business like ours, where, as I said, there's very few decisions that are fatal or irreversible.
0: You have. A lot of interesting thoughts around decisions, actually the, I I know through researching you, it is hard to avoid this productivity call productivity tool called decision journal. That seemed like that kind of changed a lot of your maybe leadership style. And like one of these core competencies, I think that you have, which is decision-making, what is a decision journal and how has it helped you make better decisions? So this idea comes from someone, Shane Parrish, who is a Canadian, however I describe what he does, he's
1: a writer amongst other things, consultant, and he has a a blog called the Farnham Street Blog, which I highly recommend around leadership and team. And this is actually proposed as a personal process. So firstly, this could make a lot of sense at a personal level for yourself, but we implemented this for the team. and, And the idea is that Every time you're going to make a decision that's significant, not doesn't have to be huge, but has some significance. You report that decision in a public place and you answer a few questions. So what the decision is, what your rationale for that decision is, what the expected outcome of that decision will be, and at what point you can evaluate that decision. And what that does is a couple of things. Firstly, it helps achieve shared consciousness because the rest of the team learn, A, what I'm working, what I'm thinking about, and most importantly, how I make decisions. They get to know me, my risk profile, the thoughts that cross my mind, why I'm making certain decisions and what I think is going to happen with them. So they get to think think a bit more like me in a productive way and they can relate and empathize the way I work. So we're a much stronger team as well as being across what I'm doing. But at a personal level, it creates some self-accountability and that avoids that natural like revisionist history. As you all remember, like we always, you know, you buy something really expensive and then you'll think about afterwards why it was worth buying. And then, you know, it's as if you thought about those things before and that's why you bought it, but you actually didn't. You justified yourself. And that happens with decisions. Looking back on why you made a decision, it's really hard to get better at decision making when you don't objectively have what was going through your mind when you made the decision. You've got some mishmash of the recollection of how you felt afterwards and once you start to see some results. So recording that at that point in time and forcing you through that timing to come back to that decision means you have the before, the after, and then the actual outcome to compare. And you can really learn from that decision objectively. So I think it's a great personal productivity half have for Life Act too. You know, applying for a certain job and going after a certain career path and even choosing a school and all of these things, you really can evaluate and get a lot better at making
0: decisions in life with a process like that. I agree, I think this is a really good idea, even if you don't want to publicly share it, but obviously creating that routine of going back and and evaluating those decisions, I think easily just defaulting to maybe three months or six months and put that, put that on as a calendar, um, invite to yourself to review. But yeah, even if I don't think I'm going to share this out publicly, it's been a great, I've started this process a month ago and I'm really excited. I haven't hit any of the ones that I'm reviewing yet. But I'm excited to start realizing and retrospectively looking back on some of the decisions I made, why I made them, and start to evaluate where I was and if that's still how I'd make that decision. Like, it is a really, really powerful exercise.
1: And there's a very tight feedback loop. You'll see it'll improve your decision-making immediately. It's the next day when you make that next decision after you've evaluated one, you're thinking, well, hang on, I thought you you don't forget that decision. This is what I thought was going to happen. This is what actually happened. So now when I make this decision,
0: you know, and you can just make better decisions right away. So yeah, highly recommended. Well, Darren, we're uh, coming to the close of our conversation here. It's been such a blast. Let's first point out where people can get connected with Hugo if they're interested in the product that um, your company creates. That was Hugo.team. So Hugo is H-U-G-O and then .team. Okay. Darren, what about personally, if people resonated with something that you said, they want to connect with you, where's a good place for them to reach out? Yeah, would love to. LinkedIn or Twitter. So it's Darren Chait, C-H-A-I-T. And you can find me yeah, on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. and very happy to continue the conversation. Definitely. And we'll drop those in the show notes. Anywhere else that you want to direct or anything else you want to say about Hugo, if people are interested in the product?
1: Yeah, check it out. It's free for small teams and you can sign up yourself. So even if you don't have that decision-making role in your business, um, You can sign up and, and, and focus on your meetings and your own meeting workflow, share with a few teammates, if you like, and and get value before the
0: company does. Totally agree. How many, I think there's like a certain amount of free colleagues that you can have or amount of colleagues that you can have until you're out of the free version. That's right. Yeah. You can attend 10 10 users for free. Yeah. Super awesome. So Darren, my final question for you. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16 week class to a group of graduating college seniors, on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? I would, I would go out and build something
1: and sell it. So uh, I would encourage everyone to try, do something in a business setting. And what I'm getting at, whether that's a site hustle, making clothing, or whether that's a product, a bit of software, whatever it is, the lessons that I've learned in true Hugo in this mini MBA or whatever you want to call it, um, transcend any career path. The importance of being effective at selling, even if you're just selling yourself in an interview process, the importance of being able to be self-motivated and driven, whether even if it's just a study, that the importance of being able to bring others along with the vision and get them excited and passionate about what you're doing matters no matter what you're doing. And that experience, I don't know how it can be taught short of trying to build something, sell it, distribute it yourself. So that would be, that would be, I think the best professional life lessons that I wish I, I learned earlier on.
0: And if I was just to piggyback on that and just spitball, what would the grading rubric look like? Like how would you evaluate if somebody passed or failed the class? I, I think it comes down to, it, it, becomes, it comes down, uh,
1: we can talk about minimum viable product and those sorts of things, but time to action is what matters the most. So the people that has, sit planning, even if they've got the most incredible go-to-market marketing plan, versus those that are hustling to find some quick way to distribute that won't scale. It, it is, it is, it is ch- it's chalk and cheese. And um the same goes for building that product. You can build the most incredible technically incredible piece of software versus a presentation, slide deck that can feel so excited about a problem they have. And, and the latter is more valuable up time. You obviously need to deliver on it. So Time to action and deliver tangible deliverables and getting things done is would be would be the best way to to, to grade, great, great success. And and that's like the opposite of the way college and school works, right? Uh, the longer the report, the the better the planning, the better you do. And that's just not how it
0: works in my view. it would be such a fun class. <laughs> Maybe a little stressful, but honestly, I think stressful in the right way. Like yeah. it is, it is like the kind of get off your ass and, and go do something and like yeah. come back.
1: <laughs> like exactly, exactly right. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Darren, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Thank you so much for volunteering the time and, and coming on the show. Looking forward to staying connected with you. Likewise. Thanks for having me hey everybody thanks for listening if you like this conversation today be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes if you want to connect with me send me a message on instagram i'm at justin lee peters you can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co this episode was produced by gabby dimocky i'm your host justin peters thanks for tuning in